you spooktacular people. Welcome to the History Goes Bump Christmas Special 2015. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And we are joined in studio with special guest Dan Foytick of the Wicked Library and the Lift and the Ninth Story Podcast. How are you, Dan? I'm fantastic. You know, I figured as an executive producer, I had to come up and make sure that everything's above board or down, as it were. And you can attest to the million-dollar studio setup we have. This is fantastic. You know, I'm going to model my studio after this whenever I get back because this is <laughs> this is some pretty high-tech stuff here. I actually should get some tips from Dan. You have, what do they call that stuff that you put on the walls that buffers the sound? Sound foam. See, I don't even know what it is. Uh, that eggshell. That eggshell stuff. I don't, I don't know what the correct term is. It's just it's uh, it's to absorb the sound so that uh, I don't echo, 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 echoes. Yeah, Diane wants eggshells. She's going to be going to Target and buying all the mattresses and you know you can use be- that stuff. People do. Uh, Dan is also a fellow podcaster over at Society Thirteen. You guys have been hearing us run that on the tail end of our shows, and that's because we have joined up with the Society 13. So tonight we're going to discuss some of the history behind Christmas and, most importantly, analyze the history of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve. Most of our Christmas traditions are rooted in Victorian England. Sending Christmas cards and caroling door-to-door are just a couple of those traditions. But one tradition fell by the wayside, and that is the practice of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve. Dan, it's kind of sad that we have drifted away from that. And I think a lot of people are unaware that that was a tradition. And we were just discussing before we started recording a little bit about a song that most of us sing every single year and have done probably ever since we were kids. And it talks about this tradition. Yeah, it does. It's um, it's funny because, I mean, we were talking about singing it as children. I mean, I remember singing this in chorus and just not even thinking about what the meaning was you know you're just singing words it sounds happy it's good but there's one line that stands out there will be scary ghost stories and so we all sit there and go what does that mean (laughs) we're used to chestnuts on an open fire but which are more disgusting than ghost stories popping and all that other stuff that's normal right but you know whenever mr williams has his line there about the ghost stories he's referring back to that old tradition of telling ghost stories and the funny thing is it's something that continues on in europe it's it's real popular in england they started it in was it 71 or 72 with mr james ghost stories every year every year for christmas which i know our good friend mark nixon's a big fan of well and i know last year when we read ghost stories on the show we did do an mr james and yeah. i mean he's just perfect for it yeah absolutely but it was popular here in the States, too, just as popular. And it's kind of something that is popular still over there, but most people have forgotten that that was a tradition here for a long time. And it goes back a lot further, of course. It would be fun to have people get more into that with their families, because if you think nowadays, especially now, you have all the electronics out there and people just get distracted with everything and they don't even sit down and play games together anymore. And this would have been such a fun family thing. You know, they'd be sitting around reminiscing about those that aren't with us anymore. So you're telling stories about them and then you shift over into telling ghost stories. And if you think about you, you pass down the recipes. One of the things that we like to do is bake cookies for Christmas. Do you guys do that, Dan? Of course. (laughs) I eat them as well. (laughs) Oh, I love eating them for sure. And you pass down recipes, right? Well, wouldn't it be neat if you were passing down? Hey, grandma used to tell this ghost story. 
Yeah, there's there's a there's something special about a story that's passed down from generation to generation, and there's a lot of them out there. I mean, if you don't have your own in your family, you can certainly grab one and make it your own. And I'm sure we're going to share some today, right? We definitely are. Well, and just talking about things that we're going to talk about a little later on, but a lot of us do have a tradition of actually watching a ghost story every year. I know Christmas Carol was always something we watched as a family, and the Muppets even did one. Mm -hmm. That's true. And we were just discussing that we didn't really think about the fact that that was a ghost story. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, whenever I started researching this and thinking about it more, I'm like, well, you know what? That is kind of the quintessential Christmas ghost story, and it was actually custom written that way. But it's I've always thought of it kind of as just a nice story about Christmas and regaining your love of Christmas. And there's a lot of scary elements in there that I guess, you know, and that's one of the things that's funny is they say that kids aren't often as scared by things as adults are, you know, that they can listen to the story and go, Oh yeah, it's this nice story about Scrooge and Oh yeah, there's a little boo boo and that type of thing going on, but it's not terribly frightening. But as an adult, when I read that story and I think about that story, there's some pretty scary elements in there. And I guess that's because as you get older, you start to think about things like death and that eventually this ends. And when you're a child, you don't think about that stuff probably as much. No, I wouldn't want the ghost to take me and show me my grave. No, that not only is that terrifying because the ghost of the future, Christmas future, mm-hmm. is just a terrifying figure. But I, I think Jacob Marley coming onto the scene is pretty terrifying. Oh, yeah. And number one, not only is it because it's somebody that Scrooge knows, but he's in chains. And you're thinking, if that is what happens after death, wow, that's not very appealing. Mm-hmm. That's terrifying. Absolutely. And that he, it's so bad that he's like, I've got to come back and tell you, don't do this. Don't be a Scrooge. I found a couple of quotes, Stan, about people who were in the Victorian era that were talking about how they used to do this tradition. One of them was Henry James. And he wrote in his novel, The Turning of the Screw, Quote, the story had held us round the fire sufficiently breathless, but except the obvious remark that it was gruesome, as on Christmas Eve in an old house, a strange tale should essentially be. I remember no comment uttered till somebody happened to say that it was the only case he had met in which such a visitation had fallen on a child. And so that was just one of those ways that they were talking about how on Christmas Eve they're sitting around this fire talking about this tale. And then uh, British humorist Jerome K. Jerome wrote, quote, Whenever five or six English-speaking people meet round a fire on Christmas Eve, they start telling each other ghost stories. Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about specters. And I thought, wow, authentic anecdotes? So it's almost like they're telling... This is a real scary experience I actually had. Yeah, and some of the best ghost stories are just like the ghost. They're very ethereal. They're they're something that you can't quite nail down. The language is very specific, and it's 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 a lot of fun. You know, in, in, for most, I'm guessing for most listeners, it's probably very strange. At least our American listeners, it's very strange that what does what ghost stories have to do with Christmas? Aside from the obvious Christmas Carol. But there's a long tradition that goes way back, and it goes to the roots of this time of year and Christmas and some of the traditions. We actually did um, a show for Ninth Story that will be coming out on Christmas Eve uh, where my good friend Dr. John Towers, and forewarning, there is some strong language in, in that episode because we, uh, we borrowed a card from Drunk History. and uh, 
we did something <laughs> called Drunk Chris Myth Story, and uh, we got John a bottle of drinks, and uh, he sat around and consumed that, and then proceeded to give us some information about myth and lore and all the ancient traditions, the patchwork quilt that is Christmas. And part of what we covered was some of the reasons why this is a special time of the year, aside from the obvious Christian reasons, that it's the shortest day of the year, the longest night of the year, obviously. It's when the old sun dies and the new sun is born. And people were not quite as connected as they are now. People were lived in small groups, and they were a lot closer, I think, to nature and the earth and there were tons of stars in the sky and it was a scary cold dark time of the year whenever the wind whipping through the trees was also the voices of the spirits and you had this situation where people were afraid that there were ghosts and other things out there it's when the spirits would come back to the earth because the veil was at its thinnest it wasn't you know, it wasn't um, Sawin or, or, or Sam Hain, as some people would say, uh, <laughs> Halloween. Uh, that was an important holiday, too. But Christmas or the this, this winter solstice was whenever the veil was the thinnest. And that's when the spirits were allowed to come back. And you had the tradition of Odin going on his wild ride or Woden uh, to capture the spirits and bring them back. And he would be accompanied by spirits from Valhalla. And his, you know, his dogs and he would ride his, his steer and all that fun stuff. So, I mean, there's a lot of interesting traditions that center around spirits and darkness and the cold, dark nights of winter. And I think that's where all the tradition of telling these ghost stories comes from. That was something interesting that we were discussing that when you do the research on this, you start looking at Halloween and you think, wonder why they always say that's when the veil is the thinnest, because as you pointed out, Dan, when you look at the winter solstice, that's really when the veil was the thinnest. And it makes sense because, as you pointed out, it's the longest night. And a lot of people, I'm one of them, is afraid of the dark. And you couldn't just go around flipping on the cave lights or whatever and <laughs> light it all up. So I, you just think about how... And, you know, when you've been out somewhere where it's dark and you it's so dark you can't even see your hand in front of your face... That would just be a terrifying time. And so it makes sense that you would have this telling scary stories at that time. Plus, they made up stories about how they explained why it was so dark at that time of the year, because they didn't understand gravity and rotation of the earth and the sun and all this other stuff. Well, I know John talks a little bit about Saturnalia. and um, Yeah. <laughs> and he probably knows a heck of a lot more than I do. Basically, it ran for a week. And they started off just doing it for a day, and then it would end up going for a whole week. And it kind of depended upon whoever was in charge, mm -hmm. because different emperors would have it run for different amount of times. and How much wine there was. That could be, too. And so do we, do we have enough for a full week of celebration? It usually fell between what on our calendar would be December 17th to the 23rd. So you're talking basically at our Christmas time. And it was to Saturnus, who was the god of seed and sowing, which makes sense that it would go with the harvest. So it's almost like the harvest is going all the way from October through November on into December. You know, it makes me wonder if in those different areas, they probably had different harvest times, depending upon the temperature and stuff. Yeah, there's um, there's two parts to that that are pretty interesting. One is that 
it's like an act of defiance to have this huge feast in the middle of the winter whenever, you know, there's it's an act of faith that things are going to get better and plants are going to grow again and you're going to have food again. Plus, there's also a lot of stuff that you would harvest that isn't going to last through the winter, so it had to be consumed. Um, but there's there's a lot of interesting ways of looking at it aside from the obvious, you know, let's all get together and have fun. But, you know, it's the darkest night of the year. So we gather together for protection. We gather together to make merry. We gather together to have this act of faith, this act of defiance saying, we believe that there's going to be another spring and we're going to be able to plant again. So that makes sense. One of the things that was a practice during Saturnalia too, was that they would do this role reversal thing. So if you were a slave, you would become the master, and the master was the slave. So I thought that was really interesting how they would do that. And then, of course, they would do the exchanging of gifts, which makes you think if that's makes you wonder if that was a carryover from that too. Mm-hmm. Of course, it was mostly candles and little earthenware figures and stuff, not an Xbox or whatever they're doing nowadays. But uh, someone in each house was appointed Saturnalius Principus, it means Lord of Misrule, which is much easier to say. So that is an interesting thing. We don't uh, carry over the whole exchanging of roles. But, of course, we don't have slaves and masters as much anymore either, unless you're into Fifty Shades of Grey. (laughs) All righty. Anyway. makes a great Christmas gift. Throw away. (laughs) I was going to say, do not read that. (laughs) You're going to get lumps of coal in your stocking. You'll just get a book. That's it. (laughs) It is the lump of coal. It's worse than a lump of coal. At least coal is useful. <laughs> you can burn the book. You can burn a book. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's true, but it burns too fast. Well, as you move forward from the Roman Saturnalia, you do get into more of the Celtic times, and you get into the Germanic Yule, which would have different things that contained Yule in front of it, like the Yule log. You Yule tide. Well, they would say it was Yule tide greetings. I mean, that's where we get Yule from. Uh, they would feast on the Yule, Yule goat. Mama. <laughs> Well, I know somebody's getting coal in their stocking this year. You know, Krampus has already come and gone too bad because you really could use a visit. Hey, Josh would be thrilled if Krampus, if I was bad enough for Krampus to come. Josh would be doing cartwheels. Uh, They would feast on Yule goat and boar and they would sing songs and dance and stuff. So that'd be kind of like singing Christmas carols. So what made a goat or a boar a Yule? must have killed it at that certain time i don't know why or did it have i wonder if it had any of the same like when they used to do sacrifices if it had to have certain things to be the yule boar i don't know that's not something i looked at that would be interesting to figure out well there is a the norse tradition um with odin where there were a lot of different things that he was purported to hunt while he was out uh boar horse maidens whoa I like how he lowers his voice. Maidens. Maidens. <laughs> Ladies. There still are a lot of groups out there that do still observe Yule. I, I think in Wicca, they still do that. And it usually lasts for about 12 days, which goes with our 12 days of Christmas, which is probably where they got that idea from. Well, I just thought that we could talk a little bit about some of the other authors that, because this was such a popular thing back in the Victorian era, there were authors who were writing Lots of different books that we consider to be classics nowadays, but they were taking the time to write ghost stories. Whereas nowadays, if people are in a certain genre, they don't usually, like Stephen King is not generally writing a romantic comedy. He's sticking to horror. But back then, 
even though you were writing maybe something that was a classic drama or something, you would take the time to write a ghost story. So you had Rudyard Kipling, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Elizabeth Gaskell, Edith Nesbitt, just to name a few, were all writing ghost stories at that time as well. And Dickens wrote a lot of ghost stories. He's known for literary fiction and, of course, Christmas Carol, but he wrote things like The Haunted Man and The Signalman. I love The Signalman. A lot of people credit him with the idea of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve. But as we've pointed out, it dated back further than him. And even in his time, Washington Irving had written um, ghost stories and talked about doing it at Christmas long before Dickens had even written A Christmas Carol. Yeah. Part of the reason A Christmas Carol was written was to try to save and revitalize Christmas because it was actually nearly abolished back then. Uh, Puritans didn't like the celebration of Christmas. Oh, surprise, surprise, the Puritans. <laughs> well, I think it was because since they were, you know, into doing everything pure, yeah. most people know that Jesus Christ was not born on December the 25th. He wasn't? <laughs> I just burst in his bubble. <laughs> just kidding. And so I think that that was their, one of their complaints is that they wanted to go to a time that would be more appropriate to when he was born, which probably would be on our modern day calendars, more like September. So it's just one of those picky little things that the Puritans had. And so I think that that's why they were trying to pull the Christmas. Plus, if you think about it, we watched it with a lot of different quote unquote holidays is that the Christian church, almost at the same time that they would be taking a property that was part of another religion and they would build a church on that spot. If it was something that was a a pagan church, they would build a church there. Same thing with the traditions. If it was a pagan tradition, they would make it a Christian holiday. And so then they would take a lot of the same things that they were already doing as pagans, but Christianizing it. So it was kind of the same thing here with that too. One of the other things that when I was looking back at this is that they would call these stories that people would tell, not necessarily ghost stories, but winter stories. And so you would see in a lot of literature that it would be talking about a winter story and it was basically a ghost story. Um, I believe Charles Dickens wrote a story called The Christmas Tree. And in that he writes, there is probably a smell of roasted chestnuts and other good, comfortable things all of the time. For we are telling winter stories, ghost stories or more shame for us round the Christmas fire. So even there, he's basically saying, mentioning this winter stories. Jim Moon over at Hypnagoria had written a an article about this and he had said that this you want to focus on that winter stories. It's no mere idle coined epitaph, but a specific phrase that has fallen into disuse and whose meaning has been forgotten for a winter story referred to a fantastical story. And this term was in usage for centuries before Dickens. Uh, For example, a 17th century philosopher, Joseph Glanville in his most famous work, the treatise on witchcraft referenced by Poe and Lygia and by H.P. Lovecraft in his Yule Horror Tale, The Festival, had harsh words for those who dismissed the existence of unearthly powers as mere winter tales or old wives' fables. Rewinding a little further back into the past, we discover this usage of the term was around in William Shakespeare's time, and this is why he titled his strange fable of magic and transformation, A Winter's Tale. I did not know that. I was like, oh, that's really fascinating. Because you, you just think, A Winter's Tale, oh, he was talking about the season, and that's not what he was talking about. 
Yeah, it's got that dual meaning that's always very interesting. Exactly. No, I mean, I, I, the only the only other thought that I had was, you know, a lot of people say, well, why would you tell stories of scary stuff if it's scary things that are happening? And I think it's the same reason we, we, we tell horror stories. It's the same reason we tell any scary story, because when you tell a story, well, two reasons. One, when you tell a story, you're you're trapping the creature, the ghost, whatever you're talking about, within the confines of the story. It has to obey the rules of the story. So it almost becomes kind of like an old form of storytelling is like wish fulfillment. Basically, you tell a story about what you want to happen. And by making that story something that is shared between a group of people, you have the ability to kind of reshape reality and to change things. And second, there's an old tradition where if you can attract the spirits and entertain them and keep them busy so that they're listening to the story, they're not doing other things or hurting you or causing chaos. They're kept there until the sun comes up. And when the sun comes up, then they have to depart. So, you know, one of the other things that's kind of interesting about it is you have this tradition where the listeners now that are listening to the story, all the spirits from the past might be sitting around and listening to the story and sharing the time with you. And hopefully because they're listening to the story, they can't do other things that you would rather they don't. Well, that's a very interesting way to tempt the spirits, if I do say so myself. That it is. We're going to tempt them with literature. Isn't it time that we return to building fires, lighting some candles, filling our mugs with coffee, tea, cider, or hot chocolate, and gathering to tell and hear scary ghost stories? So come on around the campfire. Join us as we share some creepy and scary tales with you. Well, Dan, you had a poem by H.P. Lovecraft that I would love for you to read for the listeners because it's very appropriate for this time of the year. Yeah, it's the one you mentioned, actually, the festival. Okay, I was wondering if it was that same one. Yeah. So this is Yule Horror by H.P. Lovecraft, which was later renamed Festival. There is snow on the ground, and the valleys are cold and a midnight profound blackly squats o'er the world. But a light on the hilltop, half seen, hints of feastings, unhallowed and old. There is death in the clouds, there is fear in the night, for the dead in their shrouds hail the sin's turning flight, and chant wild in the woods as they dance round a yule altar, fungus and white. To no gale of earth's kind sways the forest of oak, where the sick boughs entwined by mad mistletoes choke. For these powers are the powers of the dark from the graves of the lost druid folk. I just love H.P. Lovecraft. Just oozes creepiness. You pretty much love anything that is of the macabre. That is true. Denise, I have here a New York ghost story that's been retold by Essie Schlosser. Would you care to share it? One cold winter night early in the new year, a certain Dutchman left the tavern in Terrytown and started walking to his home in a hollow nearby. His path led next to the old Sleepy Hollow Cemetery where a headless Hessian soldier was buried. At midnight, the Dutchman came within the sight of the graveyard. The weather had warmed up during the week, and the snow was almost gone from the road. It was a dark night with no moon, and the only light came from his lantern. 
The Dutchman was nervous about passing the graveyard, remembering the rumors of a galloping ghost that he had heard at the tavern. He stumbled along, humming to himself to keep up his courage. Suddenly, his eye was caught by a light rising from the ground in the cemetery. He stopped, his heart pounding in fear. Before his startled eyes, a white mist burst forth from the unmarked grave and formed into a large horse carrying a headless rider. The Dutchman let out a terrible scream as the horse leapt towards him at a full gallop. He took to his heels, running as fast as he could, making for the bridge since he knew that ghosts and evil spirits did not care to cross running water. He stumbled suddenly and fell, rolling off the road into a melting patch of snow. The headless rider thundered past him, and the man got a second look at the headless ghost. It was wearing a Hessian commander's uniform. The Dutchman waited a good hour after the ghost disappeared before crawling out of the bushes and making his way home. After fortifying himself with schnapps, the Dutchman told his wife about the ghost. (laughs) By noon of the next day, the story was all over Terrytown. The good Dutch folk were divided in their opinions. Some thought that the ghost must be roaming the roads at night in search of its head. Others claimed that the Hessian soldier rose from the grave to lead the Hessian soldiers in a charge up nearby Chatterton Hill, not knowing that the hill had already been taken by the British. Whatever the reason, the headless horseman continues to roam the roads near Terrytown on dark nights from that day to this. We also have a very special story to share with everybody. This one is written by Mark Nixon, who is the editor over at shadowsatthedoor.com. And Mark gave us the extra treat of reading it himself. So you're going to get it in his voice and the way he would like it to be told. The Corruption of Hawkswood by Mark Nixon If one were to drive southbound from the historic city of Durham, following the winding roads through the old pit villages, you would eventually come to a quiet road, shadowed by the presence of trees. Before long, the road will widen to half-reveal a turning on the right, often missed if travelling too quickly. Nestled between the densely packed trees stands a grand iron gate. This is the entrance to Hawkswood Country Park. Within, a small lake lies silently between sloping hills. On the east embankment, the water splinters into stretching ponds embedded in a surrounding nature trail, the main attraction for visiting families. Yet today, the usual sound of children is absent, heavy clouds obscuring the true passage of time. A Sunday here is rarely so still, and somewhere, a lone dog barks and the sound rolls over the hills. The peaks overlooking the park are largely vacant. The grass is long overdue a trim and sways in the sporadic breeze. A solitary figure saunters up from the lake path, a long trail of sunken footprints behind him. His hands rest in his pockets of his unfastened coat, a thick jumper shielding him from the cold of the sharp autumnal air. He keeps his head bowed, and walks without purpose. Save for the occasional rambler, he is alone in his corner of the park. The solitude is welcome, and the silence even more so. His breathing grows heavy as he reaches the crest of the hill, and he stops a moment to take in the scene. On better days, the serene view has offered a pleasant moment of escape. Today, he sees a veil of grey, threatening to entirely envelop the surrounding landscape. He exhales loudly, and deliberately. Maybe the walk isn't going to do the trick today. Behind him, the trees dance as a strong gust rattles them to life, their dying leaves tearing loose 
and darting across the terrain. He half turns and catches sight of the woodland behind him. Despite the pale light of the afternoon, the trees are swathed in darkness, anything beyond the first few feet remaining a mystery to those on its outskirts. Strange, he thinks, how he has never paid them any mind before today. As he gazes into the woods, a flash of brown streaks past his peripheral vision. The movement catches him off guard, and he stumbles backwards, barely remaining on his feet. He chuckles awkwardly, more for the benefits of anyone who may have seen him than for himself. Glancing down his feet, he is confronted by his assailant, a doe-eyed, panting dog. It settles itself, and sits dutifully, a handsome English cocker spaniel. Its coat is rich and shiny, the kind of dog you might see in a tin of upmarket dog food. He likes it instantly. "'Sorry about that,' calls a well-spoken voice. Over the brow of the hill appears a heavy-set gentleman, adorned with a flat cap, struggling to conquer the last few steps. "'It's okay,' he replies, as he waits for the dog owner to catch up. Deciding to steal some affection, he squats and rubs a hand lightly on the dog's head. "'Hello, you?' The dog pushes her head into his hand and closes her eyes. He beams and, sensing her master's approach, straightens up. "'Oh, she loves a new face!' The ruddy-faced man smiles. Motioning to his dog, he removes his cap and wipes a hand across his forehead. "'I swear, if we had a break-in, she'd open the bloody door!' He turns to his pet. "'Felicity! Leave the man alone! Come on, girl!' He pulls his hat back on, securing it with a quick tug across the brow. Felicity remains still. She knows better than to try and climb the stranger's leg, but nonetheless she wants to play, the thundering of her tail against the ground betraying her obedient exterior. The younger man offers her a knowing smile, and she seems to smile back. Oh, really, it's okay, he protests, secretly keen to keep her company for a little longer. Oh, nonsense, comes the reply. Reaching into his pocket, Felicity's owner presents a small ball. Felicity! Her head pricks up instantly, and she springs effortlessly to all fours her eyes fixed on the ball. She follows it as he waves it to and fro, before launching it with a grunt. Bolting after her prize as it soars through the air, it becomes apparent that the man has overshot his target, and it crashes through the reaching branches of the trees. Bugger. A foot from the edge of the woods, she stops sharply, her paws digging into the ground ahead of her in a desperate bid to halt her momentum. Hesitantly surveying the forest, she paces, gazing pleadingly back at her master with a high-pitched whine. Her master laughs. Go on, you stupid girl! He turns to his temporary companion and shrugs his shoulders before calling back to the dog. If you don't get it, you've lost it. Felicity walks slowly back, whimpering all the way, her head hanging low. What am I going to do with you, girl? She offers him her best begging look. Well, I'm not getting it. You'll never do anything for yourself then. He motions his head back down the hill. Come on then, say bye. The two men exchange smiles, nod as men often do when there isn't much to say, and part ways. As Felicity and her master disappear from sight, he again becomes aware of the stark silence of the park, empty and imposing in its vastness. Maybe he should get a dog. Something tickles his nose. His hand instinctively leaps to his face to brush it away. The same feeling hits his cheek, spattering cold, wet freckles of liquid across his skin. He shrinks inside his coat against the ensuing downpour. Nothing too heavy was forecasted today, but he decides to outweigh the weather. 
He continues his walk along the boundaries of the woodland. The rain settles atop his hair, droplets rolling down his scalp like water on blades of grass. Soon, the rain falls heavier. It's fat beads tumbling down his forehead into his eyes. He blinks it away, irritated. The weather shows no sign of improvement, and he would prefer not to slowly get soaked. He considers taking shelter under the twisted canopy of branches, and as the rainwater begins to creep down the neck of his jumper, the decision is made. Gradually, sodden grass gives way to bald, bubbling mud, and warped, knotted roots erupt from the ground as the forest thickens. The trees around him multiply. They open space of the hill, shriveling in the distance, until the woods have swallowed him completely. The roar of rain over the brittle autumn leaves validates his choice, and he dusts what droplets made it through the thicket above from his shoulders. With nowhere to go and time to kill, he decides to tread on down the less trodden path. He tramps on, the crackling of twigs beneath him, the patter of the rain creating a pleasing blanket of white noise. Despite the soft ambient sounds around him, it is clear he is utterly alone. Beginning to make notes of his path, he lays a trail of mental breadcrumbs should he need to retrace his steps. Dull light permeates through the earthy branches, casting a shimmering light across the almost entirely intact desire lines ahead. The breeze barely penetrates the density of the trees, the decaying leaves lying motionless on the ground. A prickle begins to form at the base of his skull. What is it they call it? The eye of the storm. He presses on, cold fingers of unease coiling in his stomach. A sensation swells under his skin, a feeling that he should not be here. Unaware of the shower dying off, he quickens his pace, his intentions of a gentle amble in the woods giving way to a desire for the plain open spaces of the hill. The foliage around him becomes thinner, paler, a much younger set of trees. The branches are limp and spindly, their older neighbours clearly having monopolised what scarce light is available. It takes little deductive reasoning to fathom that this area had once been cleared, if not many years since. A shape catches his eye off to his left. Daggers of disquiet jolt in his stomach. His attention is turned to an area of the clearing, and nearing closer, he sees the cloying branches an ivy have climbed and envelops something solid. Beneath them, barely decipherable, are large blocks of stone, forming a dilapidated wall. As he circles around for a better view, it becomes clear these crumbling stockades are all the remains of a building. Its roof and half of its walls are long gone, looted or ingested by the mud. After some scrutiny, he recognises the basic shape of a small church. On the far side wall, an empty doorframe stands. Its door has long since splintered and rotted away, but the tattered frame still cleaves barely to the surrounding stone. He runs his finger over the fractured wood. Long, yawning scratches are hewn into the frame, struck from multiple angles. Nothing of the indifferent destruction of nature could cause, but something quite deliberate. Something human. Their ferocity screams of desperation, a want to get beyond the door. No, he thinks, squinting into the lacerations. Not a want, a need. Passing under the frame, he idly scans the interior of the ruins. What could have wanted to get in so badly? Toppled into the dirt, he spots the vine-encrusted remnants of the church one stone altar. Sheltered beneath its remaining leg, something metallic catches his eye. Reaching forward, he yanks away strands of ivy, revealing the rusted buckle of a small chest. His face fills with amazement, and for a moment, 
he forgets the foreboding of the ruins. Remarkably, it remains fully intact, wedged into a concave of the altar. Lodged in the buckle is a small lock, clearly made with care and pride. He places a hand upon the chest. The wood is worn but smooth, like a pebble on a beach. Whether by the safety of the stone marquee, or by some unnatural means, it has avoided rotten decay. Whatever is inside has been well protected. But he's overcome with curiosity. He must see what's inside. Pulling, he tries to dislodge the chest. It remains firmly entrenched, mocking his feeble attempts. Cramming his feet into the altar, he tries again. The leaves suddenly shudder behind him, as if disturbed by a scurry of feet. A splutter of alarm spews from his throat, primal and involuntary. He whirls around and sees nothing but the dead leaves, still unmolested on the ground. Blood pounds in his ears. Hello? He receives no reply, though he is not entirely sure he was not heard. As he scans the trees around him, he cannot shake the sensation of eyes upon him. He slowly turns back to the chest and holds the ivy back together to cover it a new sense of purpose upon him. He decides to return with something to crack it. With a last look over his shoulder, he leaves the prize behind. He recalls the route well, and with the occasional backward glance, he soon spots an opening in the trees. As he slips out of the reach of the woods, he is greeted by the welcome sight of the lake below him. Ahead, a young family strolls carelessly along the gravel path, and he is somewhat relieved to see another soul. The normality of it all bolsters him, and with the benefit of hindsight and the presence of others, he chuckles to himself at the silliness of his dread. Despite the distance between them, he feels the pull of the chest from within its resting place in the ruins, as if it were calling to him. He would be back. He had to have it, no matter what. The murk of the light is descending swiftly as he finds himself on the road to Hawkswood Park for the second time that day. A fog hangs coolly in the air the rush of passing cars sending its wispy fingers swirling across the country roads. A bag of basic tools sits behind him on the passenger seat, and he heads to a pub to await the complete cover of darkness. The grey horse sits a short walk from its nearest village, short enough to attract the locals and long enough to sober them up again on their return to their wives. Past the farmlands that's border the Hawkswood Park and down the narrow road, it is the last building you will see for miles on end. Sunken deeply into a large leather armchair by an open fire, he is far and away the youngest patron within its walls, making him quite the novelty for gaping locals. Absently sipping at his tea, he retraces his route through the park in his mind, the carpet softening the approach of footsteps so that he does not hear the landlord as he tosses a log into the hearth. "'You're right, mate,' the man laughs, as his young customer's teacup clatters in his frightened hands. He looks up at the publican, admiring the way his thinning red hair glows in the light of the fire. Fine, thanks, he answers at last. The landlord smiles and turns back to the bar. Actually, if you don't mind me asking, the patron pipes up, have you been here long? The business, I mean. Yeah, he replies. Been running this place close to thirty years now. You must have been to Hawkswood plenty in that time, then. The landlord eyes him closely and sighs. You're one of those journalists, aren't you? Pardon? You're writing about Hawkswood. We usually get one of your sort poking about on a slow news week. 
The landlord looks his guest up and down, his somewhat youthful appearance and urban garb seemingly enough to confirm his suspicions. Why, is, is there a story to tell? He asks cautiously, not bothering to protest. Nothing that hasn't been raked up and dragged through the mud enough already. His brow furrows. Raked up? A casual turn of phrase, or was he meaning something quite literal? The landlord returns to the bar, and abandoning his half-drunk tea, his inquisitive guest follows after him. Look, I'm not a journalist, honest. I just visit the park a lot, healthy curiosity, that's all. The landlord turns around, taking his stray dimpled pint glass and placing it to the side. Well, you look the sort. So what's the story with Hawkeswood, then? Just stupid gossip, the landlord shrugs flippantly. He seems a stout man, not prone to flimsy superstition, and yet he appears troubled by the subject matter. Can I get you anything else? he asks, with a tone more threatening than curious. The guest takes the hint. No, thank you, he replies, residingly buttoning up his coat. Good night. He throws open the pub doors, and the cold air bristles on his face, the setting of the sun having ushered away the last of the day's warmth. It's time to return to Hawkswood. The subtle rumble of the distant motorway carries over the fields as he climbs into his car, and yet there's something else glowing in ether, some other low, throbbing sound, something from within the chest. The night is bitingly cold. He sniffs hard as his nose begins to stream in the cold air. He knows he will suffer for this late-night escapade in the morning. His tools wedged into his pockets, a heavy-duty torch up his sleeve, he gazes through the bars of the secondary gate at the back of the park. I guess I'm really doing this, he mutters. With a cautionary glance behind him, he slips his foot between the iron rods and hauls himself up, delicately hoisting his legs over the top. Tossing his chisel and hammer to the soft ground, he leaps after them with a loud thud. As he makes his way through the vacant park, he pricks his ears for signs of life. Nothing but the occasional whistle of wind and the calls of unseen birds. He makes good enough speed along the path, passing groups of picnic tables, somewhat melancholy-looking under the cold blue light of the moon. Finally reaching the expanse of hills looming over the lake, he is satisfied he has remained unseen and flicks on his torch, its beam dissipating up the hillside. The mist swirls absently within its shaft of yellow light, serving only to exacerbate the way the hazy night has drained the landscape of its colour. The ground begins to soften under his feet as he enters the muddy outskirts of the woods. The torch cuts through the shadows, plunging everything outside its narrow reach into absolute blackness. A rook cries out from its perch in a nearby tree, its black eyes flashing in the night of the torch. He ignores its watchful glare and passes on. Slowly his senses adjust to the night. The woods creak around him. Adrenaline pricks through his body, a paradoxical mix of fright and anticipation swirling in his stomach. Just like before, the trees begin to thin out, and relief sets in as he realises he is approaching the clearing. He points his torch toward the direction of ruins, but they are not yet in sight. As he flicks the light from back and forth across the clearing, his ray falls upon an unusual shape. Immediately, he swings it back, the bright light casting long, warp shadows on the ground. His eyes scour the area, desperately trying to make sense of the tangled web of branches and shadows. And then he spots it. A figure. 
Partially obscured by a tree, it stands like a statue. His heart freezes in his chest. Shaking hands, fumbling in his pockets, he pulls out his hammer, brandishing it at the darkness. In a split second, the figure disappears. He flashes his torch around, frantically trying to lay eyes on the thing in the trees. Who's there? He grabs the hammer tightly. He tells himself that he feels secure and safe. He does not. Hey, I know you're there. Birds take flight above him, but no reply comes. Nothing moves in the darkness beyond, and he begins to wonder if his imagination is running away with him. Panicked breathing racks his body, the bitter night air tearing ragged from his lungs. The beam of the torch shakens in his grip. He doubles over, swallowing hard, and attempts to steady himself. Finally, his breath leaves him more slowly, gently pouring from his mouth into the night air before him. He pulls himself up and makes towards the spot where he saw the figure. Running his torch over every inch of the trunk, he finds nothing, not even footprints in the mud. A few steps further, he finds his church. Hopping over the collapsed wall, he reaches the altar and pulls apart the ivy. It's still there. It's still safe. He rests his tools on the stone top, and he tries once more to pull out the chest. It remains as stubborn as ever. Tucking the torch between his neck and shoulder, he places the chisel along the seal and brings his hammer to it sharply. The sound splits the silence of the night, and he stops and looks over his shoulder. Nothing, but the sense of being watched only seems to grow. He strikes the chisel once more, and again, heavier, again. Then, the sound of wood cracking. He successfully lodges it under the lid of the chest and pushes down upon it, popping it open a few inches. He grabs his torch and seeks to examine his trophy. Through the small gap, he slides his forearm, his eager fingers scooping at the cold, hard treasures inside. Pulling himself out, he opens his hand and out falls several gold pieces. He can hardly believe his eyes. Shining the light into the coins, he can see that they are genuine. He scoops more out, their weight confirming their value. A branch snaps beyond the ruins. He hears nothing but the excited thumping of his heart, and as he begins to collect the coins, they clatter together as his pockets fill. What am I doing, he thinks. What the hell am I doing? Two branches snap in quick succession, closer now. This time he does hear, and turns an ear behind him as he places the last of the gold into his coat, his greed overriding his previous alarm. He peers into the woods, but keeps the torch pointed at his feet, afraid of what he might see. He flicks off the torch to hide his movements. From what exactly, he doesn't know, but he makes his escape. His knees tremble, his pace slower than he'd like. He wills his legs to keep going, and they oblige. A hush falls across the woods, as if every creature within listens to the jangling in his pockets. Another branch snaps directly behind him. The last of his courage leaves him instantly, and he runs. He breaks into an outright sprint, sharp twigs tearing at his face as he mindlessly pushes through. His body wants to stop, but he won't let it, not until he reaches his... After scanning the seat for any escaped coins, he heads into his house, the familiar setting of his home putting him at ease immediately. Locking the door behind him, he presses his back against it. He's safe now, and quite possibly a tad better off. As he walks the short hall towards the living room, he stops by the kitchen to collect a bottle of ale, deciding it time for a celebratory drink. Flopping onto the couch, 
He takes out his phone, it hums in his hand, as the connections to the wider world fizzling to life again. His soggy coat still draped around him, he places a free hand in his pocket and absently turns over a gold coin. He taps the web browser on his phone and begins to search for some kind of context for his newfound riches. Deep in the furrows of his search, his eyes eventually fall upon an extract for an obscure website that seems to specialise in historical oddities. The village of Hawkswood, it follows, no doubt it was the forecourse surrounding the church that drove the residents away. Immediately, he clicks the link and waits impatiently for it to load. Drove the residents away. As the local priest apparently became more unforgiving of the everyday sins, he became stricter in the confessional and more vocal in his damnations. The story spread of his requests for bribes. The desperate and highly devout villagers began to pay. While there is circumstantial evidence to these claims, the fact there remains that Father Jonah Callahan lived a comfortable life. Upon his ultimately and reported hinted at a somewhat suspicious death, the priest's home was immediately ransacked and his grave desecrated. Some families reported that the riches were still unaccounted for and appeals were made for information in the town. Accusations were said to have been thrown between the neighbours, but the animosity did not end there. Violent crimes began to rise in Hawkswood, all under the watchful gaze of the empty church. For reasons we cannot confirm, we can only speculate. The church chose to never send a replacement to Hawkswood. He scrolls past a few paragraphs. The village no longer stands. Nature has reclaimed the land, and the crimes are mostly forgotten, as such things often are. However, the name lives on in Hawkswood Country Park. A delightful... His eyes leave the screen, and he leans back into the couch, deep in thought. He removes his hand from inside the pocket, and reaches absently for his drink. The nature of his discovery has more or less become clear to him yet the newfound information rests uneasy upon his shoulders. His hand becomes unsteady, and rather gripping the bottle, he knocks it off the arm of his chair and onto the carpet, its contents spilling onto the floor with a repetitive plugging. He exclaims aloud and dives after it. Quickly he leaves for the kitchen to grab something to clean up the mess. After some frantic rummaging, he eventually finds an old towel, and just as he turns to leave, something outside the window catches his eye. He faces it, and can just about make out something beyond the reflections of the glass. So he switches off the light and looks again. A face, looking in. Submerged in darkness, the pale, genderless face is visible only for the briefest of moments. Shadows flow over like blood spilling in water, and before they consume it completely, he is able to see the expression, a countenance of malice and hatred. The lips twisted in a mocking snarl, seemed to hover on the cusp of screaming. His own mouth opens, but his cries die in his throat. He blinks rapidly, refreshing his eyes. A lone tree in his back garden shifts innocently in the breeze. He shakes his head and forces a fake laugh, feeling quite the fool, if not a little shaken. He's tired and surmises the face has surfaced from a long-forgotten nightmare. Squinting into the murky darkness outside, he senses that the dark is not simply an absence of light, but something far more tangible, something he could almost touch and feel. Then from its depths, he hears an odd, faint, uneven sound of scratching. His imagination has teased him all night. Now, determined for logic to triumph, he ventures back to the front of the house, with a view to get ready for bed. The front door enters his sight as he makes his way back, and as he reaches the last few feet... The scratching begins again. Louder this time, he realises that they clearly emanate from the other side. 
He approaches the door and slowly unlocks the latch. The scratching does not falter, and with a deep breath, he swings the door open, ready for what awaits him. The street is empty, and more importantly, silent. The mist still lingers, a drizzling dampness in the air. The darkness of the surrounding houses is interspersed with the glowing from cracks and drawn curtains. These signs of life empower him with a sense of security. Surely his neighbours would rally with him against a potential prowler. Something on the floor glistens and what little light there is, and he stoops to look closer. He recognises it immediately. His hammer and chisel. Perfectly parallel to each other in the middle of the road, the memory suddenly strikes him. He had failed to collect them in his haste to escape. He realises his fears have been warranted. His nervous mind has not been playing tricks on him. He has not been alone since he set foot in those woods. Something is watching him. He knows it now. He feels it abruptly, indisputably, and stares down the road with wide, startled eyes. Stepping onto the wet ground, his bare feet instantly ache with cold. Tracing the sensation of being watched further down the street, he sees the darkness peppered by the beams of a street lamp. Something abnormal draws his eye. A dim shadow billows in its shaft. Standing unnaturally against the flow of light, a vague outline of a figure draped in swirling darkness. He finds it difficult to focus on, as if as it exists in some sort of blind spot in his eye. The desire to race back into the perceived safety of his home fills him, but he subdues it with great effort. He has to have answers. Has this been the watcher in the woods? He walks out to the road, his anger growing, swallowing up the sensible instinct to flee. Hey, you! The figure does not answer. Instead, its shadowy veil begins to bleed, its darkness consuming the light of the street lamp. Growing closer, he feels a force emitting from the watcher, malevolence and bitter hatred. It calls to him, taunting him. He breaks into a jog, his fury swelling in response. Two beams of light crawl up the road. He calls to the watcher again. Hey, you need to back off right... He doesn't finish. A great force slams into him. It launches him from his feet, sending him hurtling through the air. He lands with an unpleasant crack, the side of his skull shattering instantly. He hadn't noticed the car coming. The driver slams on the brakes and only just avoids hitting the body again. Lights flicker on and curtains twitch. A nearby door opens and his resident steps out. Her scream at the mangled and bloodied figure lying on the road echoes throughout the street. No one saw who he had been yelling at. And that was The Corruption of Hawkswood by Mark Nixon, read by the author. Thanks for that story, Mark. That was fabulous. And now I just feel like a Christmas reading of scary stories around the campfire is not complete without adding in M.R. James. So I am going to read The Haunted Doll's House by M.R. James. I suppose you get stuff of that kind through your hands pretty often, said Mr. Dillard as he pointed with his stick to an object which shall be described when the time comes. And when he said it, he lied in his throat and knew that he lied. Not once in twenty years, perhaps not once in a lifetime. Could Mr. Chittenden, skilled as he was in ferreting out the forgotten treasures of half a dozen counties, expect to handle such a specimen? It was Collector's Palaver, and Mr. Chittenden recognized it as such. Stuff of that kind, Mr. Dillett, it's a museum piece, that is. Well, I suppose there are museums that'll take anything. I've seen one, not as good as that years back, said Mr. Chittenden thoughtfully. But that's not likely to come into the market. 
and I'm told they has some fine ones of the period over the water. No, I'm only telling you the truth, Mr. Dillett. When I was to say that if you was to place an unlimited order with me for the very best that could be got, and you know I have facilities for getting to know of such things and a reputation to maintain, well, all I can say is I should lead you straight up to that one and say, I can't do no better for you than that, sir. Here, here, said Mr. Dillett, applauding ironically with the end of his stick on the floor of the shop. How much are you sticking the innocent American buyer for it, eh? Oh, I shan't be over hard on the buyer, American or otherwise. You see, it stands this way, Mr. Dillett. If I knew just a bit more about the pedigree, or just a bit less, Mr. Dillett put in. Ha ha, you will have your joke, sir. No, but as I was saying, if I knew just a little more than what I do about the piece, though anyone can see for themselves it's a genuine thing, every last corner of it, and there's not been one of my men allowed to so much as touch it since it came into the shop, they'd be another figure in the price I'm asking. And what's that, five and twenty? Multiply that by three and you've got it, sir. Seventy-five's my price. And fifties mine, said Mr. Dillett. The point of agreement was, of course, somewhere between the two. It does not matter exactly where, I think sixty guineas. But half an hour later, the object was being packed, and within an hour, Mr. Dillett had called for it in his car and driven away. Mr. Chittenden, holding the check in his hand, saw him off from the door with smiles and returned, still smiling into the parlor where his wife was making the tea. He stopped at the door. It's gone, he said. Thank God for that, said Mrs. Chittenden, putting down the teapot. Mr. Dillett, was it? Yes, it was. Well, I'd sooner it was him than another. Oh, I don't know. He ain't a bad feller, my dear. Maybe not, but in my opinion, he'd be none the worse for a bit of a shake-up. Well, if that's your opinion, it's my opinion he's put himself into the way of getting one. Anyhow, we shan't have no more of it, and that's something to be thankful for. And so Mr. and Mrs. Chittenden sat down to tea. And what of Mr. Dillett and his new acquisition? What it was, the title of the story will have told you. What it was like, I shall have to indicate as well as I can. There was only just enough room for it in the car, and Mr. Dillett had to sit with the driver. He had also to go slow, for though the rooms of the doll's house had all been stuffed carefully with soft cotton wool, jolting was to be avoided in view of the immense number of small objects which thronged them. And the ten-mile drive was an anxious time for him, in spite of all the precautions he insisted upon. At last his front door was reached, and Collins the butler came out. Look here, Collins, you must help me with this thing. It's a delicate job. We must get it out upright, see? It's full of things that mustn't be displaced more than we can help. Let's see, where should we have it? Hmm. Really, I think I shall have to put it in my own room to begin with at any rate. On the big table, that's it. It was conveyed with much talking to Mr. Dillett's spacious room on the first floor looking out on the drive. The sheeting was unwound from it and the front thrown open and for the next hour or two Mr. Dillett was fully occupied in extracting the padding and setting in order the contents of the rooms. When this thoroughly congenial task was finished, I must say that it would have been difficult to find a more perfect and attractive specimen of a doll's house in Strawberry Hill Gothic than that which now stood on Mr. Dillett's large knee-hole table, lighted up by the evening sun which came slanting through three tall slash windows. It was quite six feet long, including the chapel or oratory which flanked the front on the left as you faced it, and the stable on the right. The main block of the house was, as I have said, in the Gothic manner. That is to say, the windows had pointed arches and were surmounted by what are called ogival hoods, with crockets and finials, such as we see on the canopies of tombs built into church walls. At the angles were absurd turrets covered with arched panels. The chapel had pinnacles and buttresses, and a bell in the turret and colored glass in the windows. When the front of the house was open, you saw four large rooms, bedroom, dining room, drawing room, and kitchen, each with its appropriate furniture in a very complete state. 
The stable on the right was in two stories with its proper complement of horses, coaches, and grooms, and with its clock and gothic cupola for the clock bell. Pages, of course, might be written on the outfit of the mansion. How many frying pans, how many gilt chairs, what pictures, carpets, chandeliers, four posters, table linen, glass, crockery, and plate it possessed. But all this must be left to the imagination. I will only say that the base or plinth on which the house stood for it was fitted with one of some depth, which allowed of a flight of steps to the front door and a terrace, partly balustrated, contained a shallow drawer or drawers in which were neatly stored sets of embroidered curtains, changes of raiment for the inmates, and, in short, all the materials for an infinite series of variations and refittings of the most absorbing and delightful kind. Quintessence of Horace Walpole. That's what it is. He must have had something to do with the making of it. Such was Mr. Dillett's murmured reflection as he knelt before it in a reverent ecstasy. Simply wonderful. This is my day and no mistake. Five hundred pounds coming in this morning for that cabinet, which I never cared about, and now this tumbling into my hands for a tenth at the very most of what it would fetch in town. Well, well. It it almost makes one afraid something will happen to counter it. Let's have a look at the population anyhow. Accordingly, he set them before him in a row. Again, here is an opportunity, which some would snatch at, of making an inventory of costume. I am incapable of it. There were a gentleman and a lady, in blue satin and brocade respectively. There were two children, a boy and a girl. There was a cook, a nurse, a footman, and there were the stable servants. Two postillions, a coachman, two grooms. Anyone else? Yes, possibly. The curtains of the four-poster in the bedroom were closely drawn around all four sides of it, and he put his finger in between them and felt in the bed. He drew the finger back hastily, for it almost seemed to him as if something had, not stirred, perhaps, but yielded in an odd, live way as he pressed it. Then he put back the curtains, which ran on rods in the proper manner, and extracted from the bed a white-haired old gentleman in a long linen nightdress and cap, and laid him down by the rest. The table was complete. Dinner time was now near, so Mr. Dillett spent but five minutes in putting the lady and children into the drawing room, the gentleman into the dining room, the servants into the kitchen and stables, and the old man back into his bed. He retired into his dressing room next door, and we see and hear no more of him until something like eleven o'clock at night. His whim was to sleep surrounded by some of the gems of his collection. The big room in which we have seen him contained his bed, bath, wardrobe, and all the appliances of dressing were in a commodious room adjoining. But his four-poster, which itself was a valued treasure, stood in the large room where he sometimes wrote and often sat and even received visitors. Tonight he retired to it in a highly complacent frame of mind. There was no striking clock within earshot, none on the staircase, none in the stable, none in the distant church tower. Yet it is indubitable that Mr. Dillett was started out of a very pleasant slumber by a bell tolling. One. He was so much startled that he did not merely lie breathless with his wide eyes open, but actually sat up in his bed. He never asked himself till the morning hours how it was that, though there was no light at all in the room, the doll's house on the knee-hole table stood out with complete clearness. But it was so. The effect was that of a bright harvest moon shining full on the front of a big white stone mansion. A quarter of a mile away it might be, and yet every detail was photographically sharp. There were trees about it, too trees rising behind the chapel in the house. He seemed to be conscious of the scent of a cool, still September night. He thought he could hear an occasional stamp and clink from the stables as of horses stirring. And with another shock, he realized that above the house, he was looking not at the wall of his house with its pictures, but into the profound blue of a night sky. There were lights more than one in the windows, and he quickly saw that this was no four-roomed house with a movable front, 
but one of many rooms and staircases, a real house, but seen as if through the wrong end of a telescope. You mean to show me something, he muttered to himself, and he gazed earnestly on the lighted windows. They would in real life have been shuttered or curtained, no doubt, he thought, but as it was, there was nothing to intercept his view of what was being transacted inside the rooms. Two rooms were lighted, one on the ground floor to the right of the door, one upstairs on the left, the first brightly enough, the other rather dimly. The lower room was the dining room. A table was laid, but the meal was over, and only wine and glasses were left on the table. The man of the blue satin and the woman of the brocade were alone in the room, and they were talking very earnestly, seated close together at the table, their elbows on it, every now and again stopping to listen, as it seemed. Once he rose, came to the window and opened it, and put his head out and his hand to his ear. There was a lighted taper and a silver candlestick on a sideboard. When the man left the window, he seemed to leave the room also, and the lady, taper in hand, remained standing and listening. The expression on her face was that of one striving her utmost to keep down a fear that threatened to master her, and succeeding. It was a hateful face, too, broad, flat, and sly. Now the man came back, and she took some small thing from him and hurried out of the room. He, too, disappeared, but only for a moment or two. The front door slowly opened, and he stepped out and stood on the top of the perron, looking this way and that then turned towards the upper window that was lighted and shook his fist. It was time to look at that upper window. Through it was seen a four-post bed, a nurse or other servant in an armchair, evidently sound asleep, in the bed an old man lying, awake, and one would say anxious, from the way in which he shifted about and moved his fingers, beating tunes on the coverlet. Beyond the bed a door opened, light was seen on the ceiling, and the lady came in. She set down her candle on a table, came to the fireside and roused the nurse. In her hand, she had an old-fashioned wine bottle readily uncorked. The nurse took it, poured some of the contents into a little silver saucepan, added some spice and sugar from casters on the table, and set it to warm on the fire. Meanwhile, the old man in the bed beckoned feebly to the lady who came to him smiling, took his wrist as if to feel his pulse and bit her lip as if in consternation. He looked at her anxiously and then pointed to the window and spoke. She nodded and did as the man below had done opened the casement and listened, perhaps rather ostentatiously, then drew in her head and shook it, looking at the old man who seemed to sigh. By this time, the posset on the fire was steaming and the nurse poured it into a small two-handled silver bowl and brought it to the bedside. The old man seemed disinclined for it and was waving it away, but the lady and the nurse together bent over him and evidently pressed it upon him. He must have yielded, for they supported him into a sitting position and put it to his lips. He drank most of it in several draughts and they laid him down. The lady left the room, smiling good night to him, and took the bowl, the bottle, and the silver saucepan with her. The nurse returned to the chair, and there was an interval of complete quiet. Suddenly, the old man started up in his bed, and he must have uttered some cry, for the nurse started out of her chair and made but one step of it to the bedside. He was a sad and terrible sight, flushed in the face almost to blackness, the eyes glaring whitely. Both hands clutched at his heart, foam at his lips. For a moment, the nurse left him, ran to the door, flung it wide open, and one supposes screamed aloud for help then darted back to the bed and seemed to try feverishly to soothe him, to lay him down, anything. But as the lady, her husband, and several servants rushed into the room with horrified faces, the old man collapsed under the nurse's hands and lay back, and his features, contorted with agony and rage, relaxed slowly into calm. A few moments later, light showed out to the left of the house, and a coach with flambeaux drove up to the door. A white-wigged man in black got nimbly out and ran up the steps carrying a small leather trunk-shaped box. He was met in the doorway by the man and his wife, she with her handkerchief clutched between her hands, he with a tragic face but retaining his self-control. 
They led the newcomer into the dining room where he set his box of papers on the table and turning to them, listened with a face of consternation at what they had to tell. He nodded his head again and again, threw out his hand slightly, declined, it seemed, offers of refreshment and lodging for the night. Within a few minutes, came slowly down the steps, entering the coach and driving off the way he had come. As the man in blue watched him from the top of the steps, a smile, not pleasant to see, stole slowly over his fat white face. Darkness fell over the whole scene as the lights of the coach disappeared. But Mr. Dillett remained sitting up in the bed. He had rightly guessed that there would be a sequel. The house front glimmered out again before long, but now there was a difference. The lights were in other windows, one at the top of the house, the other illuminating the range of colored windows of the chapel. How he saw through these is not quite obvious, but he did. The interior was as carefully furnished as the rest of the establishment, with its minute red cushions on the desks, its gothic stall canopies, and its western gallery and pinnacled organ with gold pipes. On the center of the black and white pavement was a buyer, four tall candles burned at the corners. On the buyer was a coffin covered with a pall of black velvet. As he looked, the folds of the pall stirred. It seemed to rise at one end. It slid downwards. It fell away, exposing the black coffin with its silver handles and nameplate. One of the tall candlesticks swayed and toppled over. Ask no more but turn, as Mr. Dillett hastily did, and look in at the lighted window at the top of the house where a boy and girl lay in truckle beds and a four-poster for the nurse rose above them. The nurse was not visible for the moment, but the father and mother were there, dressed now in mourning, but with very little sign of mourning in their demeanor. Instead, they were laughing and talking with a good deal of animation, sometimes to each other, and sometimes throwing a remark to one or other of the children, and again laughing at the answers. Then the father was seen to go on tiptoe out of the room, taking with him as he went a white garment that hung on a peg near the door. He shut the door after him. A minute or two later, it was slowly opened again and a muffled head poked around it. A bent form of sinister shape stepped across to the truckle beds and suddenly stopped, threw up its arms and revealed, of course, the father laughing. The children were in agonies of terror, the boy with the bedclothes over his head, the girl throwing herself out of bed into her mother's arms. Attempts at consolation followed. The parents took the children on their laps, patted them, picked up the white gown and showed there was no harm in it, and so forth. And at last, putting the children back into bed, left the room with encouraging waves of the hand. As they left it, the nurse came in and soon the light died down. Still, Mr. Dillett watched immovable. A new sort of light, not of lamp or candle, a pale ugly light began to dawn around the door case at the back of the room. The door was opening again. The seer does not like to dwell upon what he saw entering the room. He says it might be described as a frog, the size of a man, but it had scanty white hair about its head. It was busy about the truckle beds, but not for long. The sound of cries, faint as if coming out of a vast distance, but even so, infinitely appalling, reached the ear. There were signs of a hideous commotion all over the house. Lights moved along and up, and doors opened and shut, and running figures passed within the windows. The clock in the stable turret pulled one, and darkness fell again. It was only dispelled once more to show the house front at the bottom of the steps dark figures were drawn up in two lines, holding flaming torches. More dark figures came down the steps, bearing first one, then another small coffin. And the lines of torchbearers with the coffins between them moved silently onward to the left. The hours of night passed on never so slowly, Mr. Dillett thought. Gradually he sank down from sitting to lying in his bed, but he did not close an eye. And early next morning he sent for the doctor. The doctor found him in a disquieting state of nerves and recommended sea air. To a quiet place on the east coast he accordingly repaired by easy stages in his car. One of the first people he met on the seafront was Mr. Chittenden, who, it appeared, had likewise been advised to take his wife away for a bit of a change. Mr. Chittenden looked somewhat askance upon him when they met, and not without cause. 
Well, I don't wonder at you being a bit upset, Mr. Dillett. What? Yes, well, I might say horrible upset, to be sure, seeing what me and my poor wife went through ourselves. But I put it to you, Mr. Dillett, one of two things. Was it going to scrap a lovely piece like that on the one hand? Or was it going to tell customers I'm selling you a regular picture palace dramar in real life of the olden time, built to perform regular at 1 o'clock a.m.? Why, what would you have said yourself? And next thing you know, two justices of the peace in the back parlor and poor Mr. and Mrs. Chittenden off in a spring cart to the county asylum and everyone in the street saying, Ah, I thought it had come to that. Look at the way the man drank. And me next door, next door but one to a total abstainer, as you know. Well, there was my position. What, me have it back in the shop? Well, what do you think? No, but I'll tell you what it will do. You should have your money back. Bar the ten pound I paid for it, and you make what you can. Later in the day, in what is offensively called the smoke room of the hotel, a murmured conversation between the two went on for some time. How much do you really know about that thing, and where did it come from? Honest, Mr. Dillett, I don't know the house. Of course, it came out of the lumber room of a country house that anyone can guess. But I'll go as far as to say this, that I believe it's not a hundred miles from this place. Which direction and how far, I have no notion. I'm only judging my guesswork. The man as I actually paid the check to ain't one of my regular men, and I've lost sight of him. But I have the idea that this part of the country was his beat, and that's every word I can tell you. But now, Mr. Dillett, there's one thing that rather sicks me. That old chap, I suppose you saw him drive up to the door. I thought so. Now, would he have been the medical man to take it? My wife would have it so, but I stuck to it that it was the lawyer, because he had papers with him, and one he took out was folded up. I agree, said Mr. Dillett. Thinking it over, I came to the conclusion that this was the old man's will, ready to be signed. Just what I thought, said Mr. Chittenden, and I took it that will would have cut out the young people, eh? Well, well, it's been a lesson to me, I know that. I shan't buy no more dollhouses, nor waste no more money on the pictures. And as to this business of poisoning Grandpa, well, if I know myself, I never had much of a turn for that. Live and let live, that's been my motto throughout life, and I ain't found it a bad one. Filled with these elevated sentiments, Mr. Chittenden retired to his lodgings. Mr. Dillett next day repaired to the local institute where he hoped to find some clue to the riddle that absorbed him. He gazed and despaired a long file of the Canterbury and York Society's publications of the parish registers of the district. No print resembling the house of his nightmare was among those that hung on the staircase and in the passages. Disconsolate, he found himself at last in a derelict room, staring at a dusty model of a church in a dusty glass case. Model of St. Stephen's Church, Coxham, presented by J. Merriweather, Esquire of Illbridge House, 1877. The work of his ancestor, James Merriweather, 1786. There was something in the fashion of it that reminded him dimly of his horror. He retraced his steps to a wall map he had noticed and made out that Illbridge House was in Coxham Parish. Coxham was, as it happened, one of the parishes of which he had retained the name when he glanced over the file of printed registers, and it was not long before he found in them the record of the burial of Roger Milford, aged 76, on the 11th of September, 1757, and of Roger and Elizabeth Merriweather, ages 9 and 7, on the 19th of the same month. It seemed worthwhile to follow up this clue, frail as it was, and in the afternoon he drove out to Coxham. The east end of the north side of the church is a Milford chapel, and on its north wall are tablets to the same persons. Roger the Elder, it seems, was distinguished by all the qualities which adorn the father, the magistrate, and the man. The memorial was erected by his attached daughter Elizabeth, who did not long survive the loss of a parent ever solicitous for her welfare, and of two amiable children. The last sentence was plainly in addition to the original inscription. 
a yet later slab told of James Merriweather, husband of Elizabeth, who in the dawn of life practiced not without success those arts which, had he continued their exercise, might in the opinion of the most competent judges have earned for him the name of the British Vitruvius, but who, overwhelmed by the visitation which deprived him of an affectionate partner and a blooming offspring, passed his prime and age in a secluded yet elegant retirement. His grateful nephew and heir indulges a pious sorrow by this too brief recital of his excellences. The children were more simply commemorated. Both died on the night of the 12th of September. Mr. Dillett felt sure that at Ilbridge House he had found the scene of his drama. In some old sketchbook, possibly in some old print, he may yet find convincing evidence that he is right. But the Ilbridge House of today is not that which he sought. It is an Elizabethan erection of the 40s in red brick with stone coins and dressings, a quarter of a mile from it in a low part of the park, backed by ancient staghorned ivy-strangled trees and thick undergrowth, are marks of a terraced platform overgrown with rough grass. A few stone balusters lie here and there in a heap or two, covered with nettles and ivy, of wrought stones with badly carved crockets. This, someone told Mr. Dillett, was the site of an older house. As he drove out of the village, the hall clock struck four, and Mr. Dillett started up and clapped his hands to his ears. It was not the first time he'd heard that bell. Awaiting an offer from the other side of the Atlantic, the doll's house still reposes, carefully sheeted, in a loft over Mr. Dillett's stables, whither Collins conveyed it on the day when Mr. Stillett started for the sea coast. Well, Dan, it was very cool to have you here in studio. That doesn't happen very often for us to have people actually here, that we didn't have to try to do it over Skype and worry about internet connections and all that good stuff. And Dan, how can people find out more about you? Well, if you want to hear the Ninth Story take on Christmas, you can head on over to www.ninthstory.com. Also available on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, and soon Google Play. Dan, I also wanted to talk about uh, The Lift. That is going to be coming out on iTunes fairly soon, and it's already on Stitcher and TuneIn Radio. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, The Lift is kind of a Twilight Zone meets Fantasy Island, maybe a little bit of Doctor Who thrown in there. And it's uh, it's an expansion of what I started with the ninth story. So we had kind of a mascot or sidekick or however you want to term her named Victoria. And she was the guide in the building and she would take us up to the ninth story and started to think about expanding it because if there's nine stories, that means there's eight more and what happens on all of them. And uh, kind of wanted to explore the idea of a, a place where stories can affect and change reality. And so basically what happens on the lift is that every week, we ha- or not every week, every other week, I should say, we have an episode that comes out where Victoria has somebody that comes to visit the building and they're there to learn a lesson. And depending upon how they choose, things will go well or poorly for them. But it's, uh, it's over at victoriaslift.com and they can go there and they can read the carefully timed, planned, edited version of what the show's all about that I wrote and listen to some fun of the some fun episodes. We had two pilot episodes, one that I wrote, one that was written by Mark Nixon. And then we've had four, probably by the time this airs, episodes of The Lift that came out. One written by Mark Nixon, one written by Nelson W. Piles, one written by C. Brian Brown, and one written by me so far. And many more to come. One to be written yeah, by you. I was about to yeah, say, I've one s- should be coming sometime. Hmm. Yeah, sometime next year you will be hearing a Lyft episode written by myself. 
I'm really looking forward to it. We want to wish all of our listeners a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays and whatever you happen to be celebrating during this time of the year. We encourage you to gather your family around and at least tell one ghost story on Christmas Eve. Let's get this tradition going again. Absolutely. We want to thank you for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. And I'm just sitting here. This is Dan. (laughs) (laughs) You take care now. Bye-bye.